Hey, everybody. Welcome to You're Going to Die, the podcast. What are you watching these days? I'm jumping right in, baby. Right in, baby. <laughs> Sorry, it's Cod for the first time listener. What an annoying intro. Uh, but I am. I'm jumping in. Yeah, what is helping you survive entertainment-wise? And you'll understand why I'm asking in a second. I, I just have to say guilty pleasures, maybe shame for some of the things I really love to watch, but not a, not a lot of shame. You know, I come from a background of, of improv and, and theater. Really, by the time I was maybe in like fifth grade or something, I really saw that place for me as a way to turn. I didn't think this back then. I wasn't like, well, I'm in fifth grade and it's time to figure out how to, to turn the darkest parts of my life into the bright, humorous, entertaining bits that will help me survive and seem like I'm doing well. That's my fifth grader impersonation. But you know, these ways that we, I think specifically, if you have seen a photo of me, you might have seen that my ears stick out pretty dramatically. And it's something that I dealt with a lot. I can't believe I'm talking about this. I wasn't planning on it, but here we go. It's something that I dealt with a lot when I was little, a lot of getting made fun of. And I do remember a time when part of what shifted for me was that chance where I could use my smart humor, and I'll call it smart, thank you very much, my smart humor to deflect, maybe like reposition myself when I was getting attacked and made fun of. And so using humor early on in that way felt really important, an essential part of my survival. And also, I remember being in a home that had a lot of anger and depression, and it felt really important to be able to make people laugh, especially my mom. I mean, I remember walking around the house. Uh, sometimes I would just take like old clothing and just tear it to shreds and then put it on like it was normal clothing and just walk into the kitchen and be like, mom, what's up? What's for dinner? Uh, just to get a, a smile or a laugh out of her. I would walk into the staircase. Uh, we lived in a two-story house for a lot of my childhood. And I would walk into the staircase and just uh, pretend like I smacked my head and just drop behind the couch. So if you were sitting in the living room, I would just suddenly disappear with a thump as I pretended like I hit my head. You know, I just, I just felt that, that compulsion to be funny and so then have had years of being attracted to that kind of space coming into high school, doing theater. Then my mom amazingly led a lot of efforts to get a theater program in place in my high school. And, uh, you know, some people might have argued it's why I got any roles at all was because she was heavily involved in making theater happen. Um, but after that, going to college and being in plays and doing improv ultimately, and after college, I went down to LA and did improv and, and some theater with my college, dear college friends and a lot of other stuff, but ultimately left LA, came up to San Francisco and fast forward, here I am. And I will argue in a way that doing the podcast, doing a lot of what I've done with You're Going to Die over the years has been that I've given myself a place to show up and perform and feed that part of me. Okay. So all that being said, having that kind of sensibility of my being in the world, those sensibilities, um, that relationship to entertainers too, and the inspiration they offer me, we are, that's just my way of saying, like, here's how I end up loving a great show or a great movie. And like all of us, we find these things to binge watch, especially over the last two years, the thing, the show, the movie, to really let ourselves kind of numb out maybe that's like I feel like a negative way of putting it I just want to laugh and be entertained sometimes I've watched plenty of dark depressing things but I also really love to laugh and I'm feeling very excited about today's guest because of all of that so one of the shows that has been a favorite of mine and my wife is AP bio and it's an it's a more recent watch like we've just finished we're just finishing the fourth season. Just a solid comedy series and 
Sadly, something we'll talk about a little later in the episode, it just got canceled, but you know, all things end. In fact, I want to be left wanting more. I'm tired of things lasting for 16 seasons. So like, okay, I've, I've made good with it, but also I'm sad because it's made me laugh a ton. And I'm watching this show with my wife and we're laughing a lot. And for whatever reason, I decided to like look up this one actress who makes me laugh in particular. She makes me laugh. And I didn't, I don't check. I'm not checking everybody in all the shows and movies. Like what happened to them? What's dark and grief stricken about who they are. But I did do that with Jean Villapique and almost immediately I saw that she had been on another podcast and had talked about her trying to have a baby and it, it not happening and the heartbreak of that. And, and then I think almost in that same post, it mentioned her father who had died. And so I'm not researching everybody that I see in these things, but Jean, for some reason, we, we joked about it when we talked. It was like this, like, what was that dark shadowy part that I could tell was there? It wasn't that, but whatever. There was an instinct and I checked into it and it, it, lo and behold, there was something there. And maybe for everybody, no, okay. For everybody, there's something. Let's be real. But seeing Jean as an entertainer making me laugh and making my life better because of it, and then finding out the dark parts, the grief and the things she's lived through and very recently and being visible about it, you know, being visible about it. It's like all of that led to me reaching out and saying, Gene, I want to talk to you. And so guess what? That's who we have for you today. Jean is an actress who has specialized in improvisation. She wrote and performed at the Second City in Chicago on the main stage and has worked in television and film, including The Office, 30 Rock, and most recently, as I said, my favorite was a series regular on NBC Peacock's AP Bio. If you haven't seen it, check it out. She used to have a blog called Griefing, which we do talk about some, and at least you'll get why she would ever have a blog like that when you listen to our conversation, dealing with multiple miscarriages, failed IVF, and the death of her father. And so you know what IVF is? It's a medical procedure where an egg is fertilized by sperm in a test tube um, or elsewhere outside the body. And so all that is to say, such a special treat for a lifetime of different kind of loves and different kind of compulsions I have, the way I admire and am inspired by someone like Jean, just because she's on a show I love, but then the honor it is to get to talk to her about all the other stuff and how much more all of it gets accented because of this whole thing, the wholeness of who she is and that this episode it gets to hold all of that for you, at least for an hour or so. So I hope you enjoy this episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast with Jean Villapique. Okay, I'll keep going. Uh, let's see. Yes, I grew up in New Jersey and I wanted to perform. I enjoyed uh, music and singing and performing in my little high school in Bernardsville, New Jersey. And then I um, went to, I was very lucky to go to Northwestern University and study theater there and it, uh, was introduced to improv there. I had never heard of improv really um, until college. And then I just auditioned for this improv group and Felt I had a knack for it and a deep love of it. There was a show there, there still is called The Meow Show, and it's a very kind of cool late night improv show. So I remember going to see that as a freshman and just being like, wow, like what, what is this? Or no, I didn't see it. <laughs> I saw it New Student Week. Excuse me. I was like, how did I audition for it not having seen it? When we were new students, new students, they had like a bunch of different performances, and that was one of them. And I was like, this is the coolest thing. And so I auditioned. Oh, like for where it. you like go and visit before school starts, and like you're in that week. Or I guess it's, yeah, it's like your it. first 
mm-hmm. your first week there and they show you everything and there's like different shows and stuff to go to. I remember Paul Reiser was like, we had a <laughs> stand-up comic come. Anyway. Oh my gosh. And uh, now seeing that from like being middle-aged, like if he was like, oh God, here I have to go. <laughs> <laughs> like college yeah, when you assholes. do them now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, paying the rent. But so I saw an improv show. I auditioned. I got to do it, which was special as a freshman to get to do it. And anyway, I did that for four years. And um, when I, the, the people I worked with, some of whom I still work with, um, some of them were from the Chicago area. And they were like, well, you have to go see the second city. That's, and I'd never heard of that. So we went there. And the first show I saw had um, Steve Carell and Stephen Colbert in the cast. And I just remember the theater is so beautiful. And you walk up the stairs and you see black and white photos of uh, Bill Murray and all the alumni. And you just are like in this very special kind of sacred place. And so I saw that and I was like, this is a job. This is a, this is a theater. I, I want to do this. So I eventually found my way there sort of like in a winding way, but I ended up performing and writing there. And then, um, I kept doing a lot of improv throughout my life until this pandemic pretty much. And, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, yeah. And now I work, I, I live in Los Angeles. I lived in New York a little bit after Chicago and now I live here in Los Angeles and have been, um, I've worked mostly in TV, a little, a couple of film things here and there. And just most recently, as you said, AP bio, um, which is just my favorite job and it just got canceled and and Thanksgiving in November, which has to happen to every show, but I know, um, but I'm, I'm bummed. I'm sure I can only imagine how you feel. (laughs) Grieving, grieving. Yeah, totally. Those were my, some of my dearest friends, but they still are. So yeah, well, wait, like I'm getting, (laughs) hold on. I'm not, this is ridiculous and I'm already crying. There's plenty of other things to cry about, but, but I'm really feeling that. Like, do you all, like when that news came out, how do you, you've lived through it before, but this maybe is like, I don't know, is this one unique? And how do y'all deal with that? Is it like suddenly we all get on a text with each other where the friends on the show are somehow connecting in getting this news? Like, what is that like? Yes, we definitely, well, the creator of the show, Mike O'Brien, texted um, the series regulars, the sort of adult characters of the show. I mean, the the, uh, the people, the actors playing the students are also adults. I don't mean to disrespect yes. them, but- um, no, no. So the real grown-ups, no, he texted <laughs> us just to let us know ahead of time, just to respectfully yeah. give us the information before we heard it some other oh, way. Okay. Mm. And um, immediately everybody just was, you know, expressing their grief, mm-hmm. but it pretty quickly turned funny as well because that's a big coping mechanism and it's also yeah. helpful. Um, it has been in my life anyway to... Uh, kind of walk through something that heavy. And for sure, the next day I was like, I knew this was coming and it's yeah. okay. And then two weeks later was like, I can't think I keep crying. Like, why am oh I Oh my so gosh, sad? totally. Like, of course. It's, that's grief. Yeah. yeah, totally. Now, the part that's like the introduction uh, that brings you into the heart of this is not AP bio oh. getting canceled, but it's uh, lots of other, <laughs> you know, lots of other stuff. <laughs> I did. You said I've given intros before, and I just sort of went into a rote like this is improv, and but I didn't at all acknowledge <laughs> why you would be. We, it's fine. We get there. Is, it's perfect. You <laughs> well, I believe the podcast you had mentioned that I spoke on was about um, perhaps infertility, and mm-hmm. uh, so. At, right before I got cast on AP Bio was the, one of the darkest times in my life where I was going to say where I got married. That was not a dark moment. That was the happiest <laughs> okay. day of my life. Um, but right <laughs> after I got married, we started to try and have kids and I had five miscarriages mm. um, in three years and then failed IVF. And as I was on my third round of IVF, my father fell. He lived in New Jersey at the time and I was here in Los Angeles and he fell and then had some weird, maybe colon cancer and they weren't sure what was going on. And then a sudden he had to recover and suddenly was able to be diagnosed, was diagnosed with bile duct cancer and died within 10 days. So it was just this very, uh, very dark time for me filled with um, just loss after loss. And I, I kept thinking like, I need to bounce back. Like after a couple of miscarriages, which was a very private at the time, a private mm-hmm. loss for my husband and myself. Yeah. Um, 
And then I was like, I can't bounce back anymore. I'm just so (laughs) deflated. It's just like if you threw a ball and it just stopped, Mm. like a tennis ball just was like, Um, Well, how, how, I mean, literally though, how was that? How did that have you in life? I mean, it's like, how do you, how is, how does it look to not bounce back for you during that time, like sleeping in until all hours or what was it like? I could never do that. I wake up early. I just do. No matter what. Yeah. Yeah. But how was it, how did it manifest? Um, well, I was, the darkest time was pretty much at my father's house as he was dying. Um, mm-hmm. And he was living with his girlfriend of many years. Girlfriend doesn't really define it well. It sounds like high school girlfriend, boyfriend, but yeah, this was the woman he left my mother for years earlier, but they lied about it. It was a very complicated situation. Mm. <clears throat> and on his deathbed, he was like, oh, we couldn't help ourselves. I mean, just all of this stuff came out. And I was like, oh, wow. I, I know, I don't care. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. at this time, um, I do care. But um, anyway, he, as he was dying, I mean, every day, I, every day was, it got, he, he, his life force went, away exponentially. Mm-hmm. And my sister is um, a nurse practitioner and had been there for the diagnosis. Um, and this is my, I, have you experienced, I, I don't know enough about your experience. Yeah. And by death. the way, I meant to I'm say sorry. this, any questions. So it's great to ask me whatever you want to ask at any point. I have, my mom died in 2003 uh, and I had lived with her for the year. She both got very ill, had cancer for half my life up till that point. She got very ill and I moved home with her to Redding, California from LA and lived with her through a lot of that treatment. She got a lot better and I went back to LA and did some theater with some college friends. And then she got, I was going home for Thanksgiving and she got really very, very sick. And that week leading up to Thanksgiving, she just declined in a way you're describing and then died the day after Thanksgiving. Along with that, you know, my mother-in-law died in 2012 and we were as involved and around for that too. And then a lot of my work is with hospice patients and cancer patients. So there's a lot of space around me like being near Uh, that stuff. You're probably also aware... Well, I'm sorry. I'm just moving ahead. I'm really sorry. No, go ahead. Yeah, no, no. You keep, had to go keep, through that. Just... Sorry about that. Oh, um, yeah. Thanks, Jean. Uh, I can't imagine that slow, losing someone slowly like that. Um, I can only know what I experienced, which was that quick version, but it's all... Well, it was, it was almost like it, it was a, it was quick, you know, it was a, that week is really particularly, I mean to describe that, Mm -hmm. like all the cancer stuff since I was like 13, she was diagnosed, you know, she had done the chemo, but she was a single mom. She was raising us. So it's like, I knew of it. She didn't talk about it. So like she wasn't dying during any of those years. And when I moved home, it was a question. I mean, even I remember I moved home, I was sitting on the bed while she was like, you know, sick enough that I needed to move home. And she asked me like, am I going to die? And, you know, it's like having your mom ask you that. That's like the moment, the question, that's what it was. But like, she got better, you know, she got another year out of whatever treatment she had. So it's funny. It's like, yeah, I appreciate the acknowledgement for like all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And like all of that was different from that week, which is you talk about life force, like the way you're describing your dad, that's what was happening. I mean, she was like not talking, you know, like started to not talk. Definitely was in the room more, you know, in her bedroom. Um, Couldn't, couldn't, started not being able to get up, you know, and that was like a week, very quick. So in a way, I do have a version of what I feel like you're describing with your dad, which is like, suddenly it's like, this is happening. And then it's like over. It's such a helpless feeling how fast... Mm. It happens, but because you're also experiencing how powerless you are to change any of it, what I was specifically going to ask you was, was there a moment where you had a family meeting with a doctor where they said, yeah. Yeah. So we had this family meeting with my father. My sister had said uh, she got him into Sloan Kettering in New York because he'd been in a small hospital in, in near where I grew up in, in New Jersey. And he went to Sloan Kettering and then got diagnosed. And she said, fly back today. 
we have to have a family meeting at the hospital. He's going into hospice. And I was like- You had gone, you had gone back to LA. I hadn't been to New Jersey yet. So oh, he had been sick and waiting for this over Christmas, yes. waiting to recover from this fall. And he had had a stroke. And my sister was like, strokes often mean cancer and blood clots. And um, and I, I called him every morning, but there's another thing being far away from your parent when they're dying or- you're not sure what's happening, which is just its own. It's just, it's really, really grueling. Um, a friend of mine is going through it right now with a parent in New Jersey where you call as much as you can and sometimes they can't hear or can't get to yeah. the phone. And, but anyway, I got on a flight and went back on a red eye. I had to like teach a communications workshop, which was fortuitously at LAX, at a hotel at LAX with this great group I work with in out of UCSF. Um, anyway... So I sat and just taught this communications workshop to everyone without them knowing what I was doing. Yeah. And it kind of helped me to have something to do. And I got an hour later, got on a flight and then was like, I'm flying home now. I think my father's dying. Got off the plane in the morning and walked to Sloan Kettering. And then we had to have this family meeting where they tell the patient with their family around them that you're going to die. And when the doctor said, or first we had the meeting without my father they had the social worker and his girlfriend and my sister and I were all in there. And the doctor, I remember him saying, now we're going to go tell your father. And I still have my dreams touch on this moment and things like that because it just seemed, it's so inevitable. And so it's the hardest moment to share with someone. And I just felt like in any movie where like in, in, one of my acting teachers once talked about this moment of Linda Hamilton in Terminator 2 where she's trying to run out of the, um, uh, she, where she's like locked up in an asylum or something. And then she sees mm-hmm. Arnold Schwarzenegger. And she's like, no, no. Like that feeling of just like, I can't mm-hmm. turn around fast enough and back up fast enough. And we walked into the room and I remember it so vividly. And my dad's head was kind of hanging down and the doctor was like, so here are our options. Or, you know, this is the diagnosis. This is what we're looking at, maybe a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months, Um, hospice, you know, you could do some hospice at home or hospice somewhere else. What would you like to do? Where would you like to be? And my father just went, a beach in Aruba? And everybody laughed and (laughs) he processed it so quickly Mm. and he people kept calling him and I knew he was so tired. His body was Mm. just uh, rapidly declining, but it helped him to keep telling everyone I've had a good life and I'm dying. And mm. he, so quickly he was, a, he was able to process that and that watching him have those calls helped me process it too. And it was just, yeah. it's this sacred time. My ther- I called my mm-hmm. therapist. I mean, you had asked about my low moments too. We went back to his house in New Jersey and it, there, there was hoarding in the house. It was a very, very hard situation. And my father was also bankrupt and the house was in foreclosure. It was Mm. very stressful. And I just thought, what if hospice comes to this house and the power goes off and a fucking Mm. ventilator won't work? Or, you know, Mm. I just, and the house was not, it was just a a tough place to sleep. So I just got really small and I wrote a lot. I just kept writing like, this is what happened today. You know, I, Mm. I, I, and I, I got in touch with some friends in New York city and I and they were like, come get on a train mm-hmm. after he dies, you know, or, you know, come, come see us. Mm-hmm. And then he did die. And the next day, of course, I got a cold. I got sick because my body, I yeah, had been right. in that Finally, adrenaline and I was like, you. totally. And there was a blizzard as well. And I was like, I mm. can't fucking mm. leave this house. <laughs> no. I'm sick. I couldn't afford to fly back home. My husband was stuck in Utah. He mm. was doing a show and it was just like, I am here now with my dad's girlfriend with whom I'm not close in this house and his body is gone and now I'm was it oh, yeah that's yeah. All, that was the lowest point and it just was it was it you, both you just you and his girlfriend by that point yes or were, do you have other siblings that were around my sister was in Maryland she had to go back cuz she had mm-hmm. a 5 year old and mm-hmm. she had to take care of her life um yeah. and I, I have to tell you yeah, ugh. that was the, so hard so we did that, you know, it was like the doctors took us into a little waiting room, my sister and I. That was hard. Yeah. Nothing like it. And I don't even know 
all the things he said. I think it was like life support would just, you know, like they're telling you the things you could do, but you shouldn't do probably. Yeah. And then the, you say like the dreaming about like that conversation. Is that what you mean? Like, do you relive or have dreamt about what it was like when you all told him, your dad, when the doctors told him? I've had to tell him in my dreams or Mm, like he'll just be at a restaurant and I'm like, Mm-hmm. You have to know that you're dying. <laughs> mm. Oh my gosh. <laughs> just uh, He was also a person who lived a lot of his life in denial. So it makes sense that I would be revisiting that too. Like, hey, here's what's going mm-hmm. on and here's the truth. And you need to start dealing with the truth in some way. And for him to be like, let's just get some clams. <laughs> you know? <laughs> As a response. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But in the... Did you... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. In the real moment, he was able to hear that information and... I mean, he did make a joke, but I think that was to make us all feel better because the room was so heavy. As you know, it's mm-hmm. like, there's nothing like it. Mm-mm. Do you, you know, I find it interesting that you have these like dreaming of telling him, I, I'm wondering like, you didn't say it in that room, but uh, right? I mean, the doctors who communicated everything to him, but do you do you agree with this the idea that like there's some way you're responsible? You know, like is that like a manifestation? Because I'm ta- I'm speaking from what it felt like. Yes. I mean, the doctor said what was happening to her, but she I just remember her like the canyon of space between her and I in that room when that news got communicated, and the years after, which I feel like I for sure I'm emotional about it, but I've processed so much of it and in some ways kind of like lived forth out of it. You know, it's like I'm not stuck in that moment anymore, but there was years where I was. Mm -hmm. And it had this feeling of like me somehow being responsible. Like I should have said, no doctor, we're going to fight and we're going to do all the (laughs) things. You know, like I was hung up on that. Is that, do you relate to that? Like, why do you think you're having the reliving telling him? You know? I think what, what you just asking me that, that's so interesting to me. I, I don't want to have been in that position. I didn't want to come mm. into that room. And I, now I'm thinking, are these doctors, <laughs> they just don't want to deliver this horrible information alone. Um, I think it must, yes. at one point they probably did. Mm-hmm. And then, or maybe people asked, like, I want to be there for it. But I'm sure most people don't want to be there for it. And I'm sure it's the best yeah. thing for the patient to have everyone they love around them. But it felt like when we were coming in, like here comes the FBI or here comes like six people you've been in your room. And of course we're carrying the weight of this information. Mm-hmm. Like, Yeah, you knew already. Yeah, yeah. we're. Wa- he knew, he knew. Um, mm-hmm. So even yeah, when someone right. starts That's just like, let me hold your hand and I'm going to tell you something like, just fucking say it. You're dying now. Mm-hmm. Now you're dying. We're here. We mm-hmm. love you. Mm-hmm. But yeah. oh, it just felt like it took forever. And I don't remember mm. especially what they said. so much for listening to the show uh just a quick moment in the midst here to say that so say thank you thank you um seriously thank you just listening is a huge deal and so you know the numbers matter that people listen like it's tracked and it affects our ratings and gets more people to listen so just no listening at all means so much so thank you you're hearing me i'm talking to you now, if you want to support more of You're Going to Die, the podcast being in the world, there's a couple of ways you can do that. You can go to patreon.com forward slash YG2D. You can get this link in the liner notes, but go to our Patreon page and become a patron for as little as $1 a month. And for as much as $500 a month, you can do whatever you want, but set it, pick a number, 
and help this thing be in the world. Thanks to all of you who have done that so far. We are so deeply grateful and you are making this so much more possible for us, like easier. And um, so that's a huge nod to you. Other ways you can support us, the You're Going to Die podcast is produced by YG2D, which is a 501c3 nonprofit. And you can contribute to that nonprofit even through Patreon. It's a tax deductible contribution. So no, that's what you're doing with your money is not only supporting what we do, but you know, it's good to like get that little bump on your tax, your taxes for the year. And if you want to do more, let's say you're an organization or you're an artist or you're a musician, reach out to us at pod at yg2d.com and let us know if you want to become a sponsor a little more officially where we have a bunch of different packages and we can plug what you're up to in the world in a lot of different creative ways. You can do one-off episodes where you just pop in for one of our episodes with a little bit of a contribution to the nonprofit and we'll say a fair amount of really passionate words about, I'll say it actually, I am telling you that I will say it very passionately in support of what you do. We want to support people doing wonderful things in the world. So if you think there's a way what you're up to connects to this in the heart center of it all, reach out to pod at yg2d.com and we'll send you all the information on our different sponsorship packages. And we're happy to have conversations with you about how to make the relationship work. So we're supporting each other in the world, which all of us need a whole lot more of, right? So thank you everybody and so appreciate your support. Last thing, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts right now, just go to your little app, pick your phone up, click a star, maybe put a few words in there. That stuff really matters, believe it or not. It matters and I'll tell you one way it does is that we read those. We read your words I mean it reminds us that people are listening and We've been doing this long enough that we know it's out there and we know that we have all of you and your support, but sometimes specific words of encouragement to keep us, I, I think, focused on the ways we care about this. Almost like when I get a review from someone, I'm thinking about this episode now being in the world because of them, because of someone specific that said something really heartfelt about how this podcast means a lot to them. So know that all of you that have done a review already, we read them and they matter. And if you haven't, please do both to let us know that you're listening and that this podcast is in your ear, but also to help it be in the world more so that other people get to listen to. Share You're Going to Die, the podcast with your community. Let them know what it means to you and know now how much that means to us. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you know by now that we have these little, uh, just a little pause, a little stoppy second to settle, a stoppy second to settle. <laughs> um, and uh, I just listened to what I'm about to share with you, and I couldn't wait to record the introduction. I wasn't even planning on recording anything right now. I just listened to it. It was like, oh my God, I want to talk while my face is smiling and my eyes are wet because of how happy this little stretch of sound felt to hear. And it's particularly accented. Well, first of all, it's a chance for us to acknowledge the guest. We, we sometimes use this middle of the show to do a little more... Um, yeah, acknowledging the guests, maybe maybe like honoring someone they've lost or some other part of their aliveness. And you know from listening to the conversation so far and and you'll find out more, but a lot of the story of, of Gene is what it's been to become a mother and create a family with her own baby. And this particular segment is uh, capturing that, the aliveness of it, that she has it. And we wanna share it with you. Audio of Jean with her little boy, Bruce, her adopted son, and scored 
with Nick Jana's per usual wonderful musical magic. But that's it. You have what it felt like for me. I mean, the conversation with Gene was lovely and made me smile and laugh a lot. But feeling that part of who she is in the world through her performance, her entertaining, her comedy, her acting, and then getting to feel the depth and power of her being that with the knowing of the grief and the hard stuff we go through that's so invisible, really with anybody, but especially we think about like higher profile human beings. They're not advertising usually a lot of the grief and the dark parts. And so then to have this particular chance to also in a magnified way get where she is at in her life now after all of that and what she gets to have with Bruce and his little alivening baby boy buddiness in the world. So we wanted to give it to you in your ears. I wanted to do... Down here is part of it. I had started the drugs and the injections. Uh, so I left on January 8th, I think. So January 5th or 6th, I started the drugs to do the egg harvesting for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really messes up your um, hormones and emotions mm-hmm. also. And I remember going into the fertility clinic, which I have plenty of not great things to say about. And I was like, which I don't you, know what you to want, do. This is the place to talk about it. <laughs> well, I want to hear about it's it. It's a business. They make yeah. money off of people's hope and they're, it, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. They probably make more money. I'm sure they do make more money with people who are not yes. viable, whose pregnancies are probably not going to be viable. So to them, it, it's yeah. it's just not, it's a business. Mm-hmm. Um and I wasn't really aware of that at the time. So I just remember, I was like, my, my father is really sick in New Jersey. I don't know what to do. And the doctor just like, doot, 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 walked out of the room really fast. And the nurse was like, ah, you, you, you do, it's your choice. You do what you want to do. And I was like, I don't know what happens if I stop this in the middle. Like, mm-hmm. do, do I pay? And then I was like thinking of money, you know, like, do I pay for yeah. all these drugs again? Do I start, what happened? You know, and she was like, you can just stop in the middle. And I was like, okay. And she was like, we can, I mean, they can always find like, if you do another round, it's half price or, you know, it's like, it's all kind of squishy and <laughs> yeah. they can find 
unused drugs that someone else, you know, didn't use or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I just remember feeling so helpless and then getting on the plane and also knowing that the drugs that you take, I feel like, I'm not sure if they were doing an egg harvest or they make you feel pregnant. Either way, my my hormones were completely jacked. And then I would forget, I'd just be like, it was so much adrenaline in my system of like, I have to deal, there was unhappy family members and people coming back Mm. to the house like, our grandfather's spittoon is in this house. And I was like, are you kidding me? There's, this man <laughs> can't eat anymore. <laughs> so <laughs> so I would call my therapist oh. and she was the person who kept saying, this is a sacred mm. space. Make sure mm. everyone who walks in that house knows someone's dying in this house. And it, it really helped to have somebody say, mm. this is a house where someone's dying and you behave differently in it. And everyone's got to respect that. And I didn't, yeah. again, did not want to be the adult to say that, but- yeah. It helped to say it. But like you were you really more than anybody in that space saying it? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I had to say it to people at the door coming in. I yeah. um and be protective of the space and people had different feelings about my father's yeah. relationship did, with this woman. With, oh so yeah, sure. There a lot of things came up, but some people were able to just let that shit go and mm. be present for and that's hard for a lot of people to do who are holding on to yeah. old things as you, I'm sure know just from talking yeah. about this a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I know that's sort of something you had mentioned you wanted to touch on. I'm wondering personally for you, you know, I did this with your dad, kind of, you said he's he's bringing up the relationship and what happened after he left your mom. And you're like, I don't want to, I don't need to do that right now. And did you feel like what was happening to him fast forwarded any of the stuff that you were still kind of dealing with around all that? Or had you already kind of had that moment before your dad got sick and died? Um, Where were you at with that? I had processed a lot of it and been to a lot of therapy and I had been married and divorced myself and remarried. So I just kind of felt like... uh, In the same way I feel about religion, like I'd heard from my father about their divorce and my mother about the divorce and they're two different experiences and it doesn't really Mm -hmm. matter which they're both right to them for themselves and it's not my marriage. And I just sort of backed off. And as he was dying, I felt that way. You know, when you see like in a movie where they pan back and you just see the whole planet, it's just like, oh, Mm -hmm. how fucking important is it? Like, did you have a credit card in this person's name when that... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in 1981 or whatever the fuck, you know, like, I was just like, totally. oh, okay. And my father kept saying, like, oh, my, his, his girlfriend, we, we met in a previous life and we were tango dancers or whatever. And I was like, okay, man. Like he just started <laughs> like, really just saying the most wild stuff to me. And oh I was my like, goodness. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so most of it. Yeah. I just cool. Whatever. Like, yeah. Yeah. And you want him to be good. You know what I mean? Yeah. He needed to be You heard. were wanting him to be like heard and like comfortable and get release whatever he needed to release, yeah. you know, it was like all about him. I was just going to listen to what he needed, put on some nice music. Somebody yeah. had a hospice thing that was like, when people are dying, they need to process their whole life. So sometimes mm-hmm. don't try to make them be in the present. Don't try and say like, are you here? It's me, it's Gene or who, you know, just let them mm-hmm. talk. And, mm-hmm. but he was pretty lucid and pretty, um, yeah, he just had a lot, I think of guilt and, you know, stuff to get off his chest and sure, some of it, I will take to my grave because it just doesn't help anyone else. You know, sometimes, you know, he just needed to say stuff. And I realized what my role was or that it was kind of being of service to him in that way, you know, or Mm -hmm. the process. Were you there then that whole stretch once you went out and he was, was, they said he was dying, you stayed. And my husband did get back the night he died. And I had said, you know, Brian's coming, Brian's coming back tonight. He couldn't talk anymore at that point, but he could like like gently squeeze the hand. And mm. um, we'd been with him all day. And then we went out to this like tacky New Jersey diner that was comforting in its own way. And I was like, mm-hmm. ordered prime rib, which is so disgusting. I, I just was out of my mind. Like, <laughs> I'm going to get a fancy meal because <laughs> Brian's here. We're okay. And it was just yeah. disgusting. And oh. what a gross cut of meat. Anyway. And um, it was like a kid, a child's like idea of a fancy dinner. And then we went back yeah, and totally. <laughs> his girlfriend had been with him a lot 
and he was in the, the bed was in the living room and my husband and I, we were like, why don't you take a night and get some better sleep and we'll sleep on the couches. And then his breathing changed in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. She came in and was in the bed. So we were all in the room when he died. I wasn't mm-hmm. awake, but she woke us up and said he had died. And it felt, I mm-hmm. felt really lucky. And also my husband mm-hmm. is so able to handle situations like this in a beautiful way. He's very funny, but it has also seen a lot of tragedy and a lot of uh, tough circumstances in his life mm-hmm. and is not scared by, I mean, he just kind of like gets super uber grounded and was just like mm-hmm. a great partner to go through mm-hmm. that with. So mm-hmm. that was very comforting. I felt lucky. Yeah, that's a big deal. Yeah. Um, you talked, I wanted to touch on the, uh, thanks for sharing all that. Sure. Um, well, I, I think I want to make the connection maybe to like how this book could end up being in the world with this humor. And I'm, and I want to talk a little bit about what it was like during all these years with the miscarriages and the IVF and even the divorce, <clears throat> but also with your dad, the idea of showing up uh, like the comedian uh, expert that you are and go to auditions and need to somehow tap or shut down the parts that are grief stricken, or maybe even let it like inform how you, did some of these auditions, you know, like what, what ways, what was the relationship with all this stuff that you were holding when your work was so dependent on like showing up and, you know, being hilarious for an audition or a job? Well, there were times when I auditioned, like I just, the first time I had a miscarriage, it was like, well, 10 weeks or 12 weeks. It was pretty far. Maybe it was 12 weeks. And I just Mm -hmm. didn't know better and had an audition for a pilot, which is a big deal. It could be a, a whole show and a whole so I did, I had talked to my agent. She is amazing. And she knew what was going on. She was like, you don't have to do this. And I was like, I can do this. And I just made terrible decisions. Didn't take good care of myself. I should have stayed home. It's important to say no sometimes. But yeah. so that, it, there were times where I just was kind of unhinged and like, I'm not wearing any makeup. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And just like, yeah. wait, wait, wait. Um, <laughs> and I remember sitting in a waiting room around other actresses and being like, I hate this business. Like, just mm. go home, just go home and feel your feelings and get it together. Yeah. Um, but there were times when I was improvising, um, I was doing shows at UCB at the time on Friday nights and some also, it doesn't matter, but um, I knew... My style has always been more grounded and acty, yeah. acting y than than like just comic um, stuff. So I think it fueled me in the same way. Sometimes if I was really angry, I would have a great show. Like sometimes it was mm-hmm. because it it was an emotional outlet. So mm-hmm. and an expressive outlet where I could pretend to be. I, I, what I did not want to be was me walking through my day it was kind of yeah. great to be able to show up somewhere else. But I, I sometimes dark stuff comes out, you know, what, what you say yeah. do. I'm sure there were times I, I just did feel, and I was on a team that had a lot of guys on it and I just did feel myself isolating. Like in the same way, sometimes I was showing up to do shows pregnant, but I wasn't telling anybody. It was very early in a pregnancy and I was like, mm-hmm. I'm not going to be as physical. So I just, it, it did, I did start to have this retreat um, and it would have been different, I think, if it was if it was a more female-driven art form at the time, or mm. if the teams I was on had more women. I'm sure I would have told them, and it would have been part of you know accepted and relatable instead of like, uh yeah. oh, <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Is that how it was? I mean, they, did most of the people you worked with you had the kind of relationships where they knew all the, a lot of what was going on in these ways? Some of them, mostly no, mostly no. Yeah. Um, because I, the people I worked with at UCB, I hadn't known for years and years. I did some shows mm-hmm. at IO with friends of mine I'd known for a long time. But I also uh, w- was aware that it's uh, just as a professional or someone, uh, someone who's been improvising for years and years, if you're about to go do a show, it's not great to walk in backstage and go, guys, hi, I had a miscarriage. Let's go do this show. Like, <laughs> then don't do the show that Sorry, night, yeah. right? So. <laughs> yeah, right. Same version, like stay home probably. Yeah. But you said it yourself. You're like, when I'm watching you on AP Bio, what a, you made a joke like, boy, I must have been really grounded. 
and and I want to I just want to talk a little more about that like this idea that when you're you're in a scene it's improv and this assumption that it's supposed to be all funny and everyone's laughing but like partly your anger or your grief could have you show up in a way that's both like could give a fuck so you maybe you do better than ever with your audition or your performance but also what does it mean to have that ground you that you're feeling that way like is there a practice in improv maybe specifically that has you be like, use that. That's your place. How do you do that? I don't know if this is answering your question exactly, but I think that feeling upset or having big life uh, setbacks makes a, a person present in a different way. And mm-hmm. improv for me is really about listening and just adding on to the last thing that happened. And I think that... Um, it it helped me to just lock in and make everything really meaningful. Mm. So sometimes someone would just be like serving a badminton thing and I would be like, I well, no, that's a terrible metaphor. I was gonna say I would hit it back harder, but like I I guess I was just not even if someone said something lighthearted, I was looking for the full possibility in that instead of mm. um uh just like ping, ping, ping. I was like, what else is ping? I don't know. Ew, I hate mm. everything I'm saying. It sounds so... Oh, no, it's perfect. <laughs> what is ping pong? There's no... no. <laughs> but I guess just searching no, for meaning I mean, maybe? <laughs> go with the metaphor. The reality is like, you're not hitting it back lightly, pinging it. You know, it's like you're sending it back with like emotion and drive, you know, like with that meaning behind yeah, it. Yeah, and I know? guess like looking at more complexity. The, like, if it's yeah. a badminton birdie or whatever, like yeah, looking at it, like, what it. is this? Why is part of it like a web? Like, what is all of this? Yes, like taking yes. more time mm. instead of just being uh, more casual with it. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever imagine, this is great, please, please, this is perfect. Uh, do you ever imagine um, something not a book, like a, a some kind of performative uh, piece that comes out of all this? Well, I had started to write a solo show called IVF, I'm Very Funny, and like... <laughs> And then just being oh my the gosh. darkest, darkest. <laughs> and I had reached out to Mike O'Brien, who I knew from Second City, who created AP Bio before mm-hmm. AP Bio. I knew he was mm-hmm. in town and I like mm-hmm. reached out and I was like, would you ever direct a solo show? And he was like, sure, come over, hang out. And I was reading him all this stuff. And I think he was just like, what the fuck? Because it was not molded in any way. And it was oh, just like characters yeah. and all this dark mm. shit. So... <clears throat> I've since rethought that just in terms mm. of, I don't, I don't, yeah. I've had lots of thoughts. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, but maybe. I mean, I love it. And back then it's like the beginning is raw, you know? Yeah. There's the like work it would take to get that thing that's very real and needs to be, but to something that's also like entertaining and humorous. But yeah, I wouldn't um, want knowing there's to a watch place it. for that. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't want people. Yeah. I was still processing it as I was writing it. And Brian had said to me, my husband, he's like, it's still happening. We're still trying to adopt. And we're still like, the story isn't done yet. And he tells a story mm-hmm. for the moth and is like a very great solo show writer, performer, and storyteller and has a great perspective. Like, you're in it. You're still in it. And I was like, mm-hmm. nope, I I pretty much process most of this. <laughs> yeah, so I'm through. I wouldn't want to do something, perform something where people were worried for me. I'd want to be, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, I know we're just about out of time, but um, I do want to end on just sort of where you're at now and with your, with uh, maybe at least a quick little um, share about your family and your adopted child, mm-hmm. right? One child. Yeah. Um, I, I guess I just want to hear you speak to sort of where are you now that you're through it? And I know there's always stuff, there's always grief, there's always things, but it certainly seems like being a mother now and and in this this family that you've made and doing the work you've done, maybe, you know, AP bio, but whatever you're working on, like, what is this now in comparison to that time? Anything you have to say or add just to finish about kind of where you're at with all that? Well, I guess I feel like in terms of uh, helping other people, if it is helpful, I've had five friends lose their parents in the last six months. It's just been a very, Mm -hmm. very hard time in that way, including two days ago. And uh, with my friend who's losing a parent in New Jersey, 
being able to just say, here's what happens when someone dies and here's what it feels like when, you know, they take the body away and all this stuff like that. Mm. I feel like enough time has passed where I can be helpful to others. And at the same time, the anniversary of my father's death is in two days. And I have been crying every day this week. And Mm. the pandemic is taking a big toll on me. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's, the echoes, the dreams still happen every once in a while. There's a lot of that echoed grief. Mm-hmm. Um, and having a son has been, uh, of course, a miraculous gift. He's incredible. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when he was a baby, I think, what if this was my dad's spirit in another being? Like, could mm-hmm. I give him mm-hmm. a life where he could be heard and listened to? And like, in either way, I want to honor this child with, letting him become who he wants to be instead of who we think he should be. So I think Mm -hmm. I've learned a lot from mistakes I've made and hard times my parents had to to help him have a better life, hopefully. Um, Mm -hmm. And I thought, I think I had one more thought and then it went away. Um, so I don't have any more problems. No, (laughs) (laughs) That's it. You're good. You're good. Yeah. So, Um, yeah. Yeah, thanks. Thank you so much for talking to me about this. And I hope I listened some too. Gene Villapique. Thank you, Gene, so much. So good talking with you. Uh, if you want to check out Gene, more of what Gene is up to, social media would be the best way to connect. Uh, and I'll put links to their Instagram and Facebook, I think. I don't know. Whatever. I'll connect you to all the things. Just check the liner notes. But definitely check out AP Bio if you need a good laugh right now. Oh, what's what's the noise? Nick. Nick Jana. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think that would be loud and uh, it won't be once I edit it out. Nick Jane is. Oh, okay. Nick Jane is here, everybody. Nick, how are you? Hi. Good. Just moving around some boulders, you know. God, boulders. Trying to, trying to thwart a, a Snoopy uh, a archaeologist oh. who's trying to steal my oh, idol. Oh my gosh. Wow. You're such a writer. You just came up with that on the spot, didn't you? Yeah. Or do you have a slew original. of things like this to say when you mess around with your microphone on podcasts? Nope. Just, uh, you know what it means to just be in the moment. Mm. Boy, do I. <laughs> Boy, do I ever. Thank you for the that acknowledgement. Stupid d- damn moment. <clears throat> uh, how are you doing today? Good. Speaking uh, of the moment. Question. Oh, go I have ahead. a question for you. Uh, somebody that I know th- suffered a loss recently and we're not normally always talking. And so like I was thinking, oh, how do I reach out and express condolences, love? Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'm just sometimes get stuck in that moment of thinking I want to reach out, but I don't want to just s- remind them of the thing if they're not thinking about it. But I also don't want to want them to think that I don't know. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, like just starting that conversation, it seems like a thing that you probably are experiencing a lot and that you have yeah. some insight into just how to navigate that moment of stuckness. Yeah. 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 Definitely. I think about this a lot and, um, yeah, I suppose, uh, doing you're going to die. It's just created a lot of opportunity to be connected to community and, and kind of find out about losses of people that I care about or have worked with or connected to, um, And so then that question, right? Like, how do you reach out comes up? And um, I mean, I guess the first way I learned about this, I think I got like a really um, deep lesson and it was after my mom died experiencing other people and how they dealt with communicating um, Mm -hmm. with me. And Mm -hmm. I think the 
the thing I've talked about to other people and, and always this kind of knowing, especially people that have suffered like really close proximity of loss that's public, you know, like say a parent or, but also with like people that have really scary diagnoses, um, health stuff. But this idea that the thing, the news is, is big and it's clear, it's public, like people know, and, and really being struck by how many people don't reach out that you would expect to including mm -hmm. family and friends. Um, but then you, you know, you have that experience like I did with my mom and it's, it's like this scene people emerge even that you'd never heard from or hadn't heard from in a long, long time. Um, mm -hmm. and so then starting to really measure like the way we, we do, uh, deal with these things or don't deal with these things and how, how, how maybe unprepared we are. Um, but I guess that's like the place to start. Cause I think like having the thing to say is tricky cause, um, I don't know that that really acknowledges what's happened as well as being like what you're saying, which is what could you possibly say Yeah, that would really meet someone in such loss and acknowledge them. And so I guess there's this trust that you should just go forth. You know, it's like this call to action to show up and maybe all you end up saying is that you're not sure what to say, but that yeah. you're a being and a body and a spirit and a heart that like will just emerge alongside someone and just be quiet. And, and, and even like be there to listen enough to know if there is something to say, you're paying attention well enough. I feel like I told someone that specifically who had the same question. They were talking about a dear friend whose, whose child had died. And, oh, how do you meet that with words mm -hmm. and and so then like how at all, cause we're so used to like, what's the fix? What's the like thing to say? What's the, the advice? And I remember telling her like, you know, your only job is to go to her. That's all you should worry about. And everything else may become clear after that. But that statement alone is the is the one that I feel like is most needed, you know, someone that shows mm -hmm. up not knowing what to say even, but they still show up, you know, cause, yeah. cause what can anyone say anyway? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. The, uh, the work I've been doing in the last few years has been letting go of that feeling like in any conversation about anything that I need to fix something or s answer a question or, or win, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. because a very mm -hmm. like dominant style of conversation. That's all about like prescriptions and, <laughs> right. and, you know, advice and everything. And, yeah. um, it's actually not what most people want. They just mm -hmm. want to be heard and feel like they exist. Yeah. And you got, you got me thinking too about the, like, even after that to the act of being the person who still remembers and checks in, uh, you know, months and years even. Mm. Like I have just a couple people in my life who write me on the anniversary of my mom's death, you know? Yeah. And, and I've made note of the dearest people in my life for the losses they've incurred, those death anniversaries. Like it's in my calendar, like birthdays, you know? Cause I want them to remember however many years out that I, I, I'm, I'm, still aware, you know, I, I know where they are in the loss and, and especially with my own mother's death, like that way of knowing, um, that sort of private club. Um, but especially in the months after, you know, there's just a way things get quiet where people stop yeah, asking yeah. And, and they think you're okay or how many times are you going to bring it up? But yeah, I just think it's, it's so then extra valuable to be the kind of person who doesn't have to have a conversation about it necessarily, or again, say anything. It's just the, like, I, I just want to acknowledge, I know where you probably still are in some way or another, you know? Yeah. That's so thoughtful. That's mm. so cool. <laughs> mm. I remember one of the first, one of the first things I did with this organization was a memorial service at the Columbarium for, that somebody asked, we hosted for mm -hmm. a friend and it was, 
I think it was the five year anniversary of their friend's death. Mm -hmm. And just, just that it existed, just that it happened. And I was there, it was just such a reorienting of thinking of what that can be. It's normally you think that kind of lonely feeling of like, well, there's a memorial service and then never speak of it again. Never, never get together and share stories, never have Mm -hmm. any other contact, you know? Mm -hmm. And me, somebody who didn't even know this person, got to know them a little bit five years mm-hmm. after they had died because of this opportunity. And I yeah. thought that was so cool. Yeah, I, that's such a hard thing to create. But boy, yeah, I remember that being a pretty important moment for me that still feels like something to like figure out still. You know, we've done things in the pandemic, like online memorials for like the year anniversary of a death. And in the same way, it felt deeply valuable to have a bunch of people who really still are feeling it know there's a place to take it. And we don't yeah. have that. Like, I know yeah. you've heard me say, but that like memorial for my mom, that was it. You know, we walked away. Yeah. I was never with that community, really any part of that community. And, and I'm, I know, I know probably like, you're like, yes, you've heard me say this. Someone listening heard me already say this, but really you're going to die came from like, I want to <laughs> keep going somewhere to talk about it with other people. You know, I want to say, I want to say her name. I want to talk about her life and death. I want to tell the stories even specifically, like, I know it just depends, right? You don't know what to say or what to ask, but when people would ask me how it happened, such a, just for me, it was just so, so important to be able to say, here's the details of that last week. And and talking to Gene in this episode was a version of that where it's like, I haven't talked about it in years, what it was like sitting in that room with that doctor and having to go into the hospital room and feel that canyon between my mom and I, you know, and Gene, let me talk about it, you know? Uh, And that's a gift and it, and it's an honoring. It's like, my mom deserves that us to return to those stories and be emotional and cry again and heal a little, hopefully, but you know, who knows, but just at least have that. So thanks for asking about that. Yeah. I think just the opportunity to give people the knowledge and courage that they could ask for a memorial service five years later, you know, Mm -hmm. like (laughs) I was Mm -hmm. impressed with the person who requested it, just that they even thought of that. Totally. Right. That was all them. Um, yeah. It's it's pretty cool. But like now that you think about it, it's like, oh, I would love to think that mm-hmm. <laughs> I could ask for that or that could happen for me, that it's mm-hmm. not just the day you die and the week following that anything is spoken of. And, yeah. You know. Yeah. It's so uncommon. It's like, how do we create that for ourselves in a culture that just doesn't naturally do it and isn't set up to? Um, I hope yeah. this organization figures out ways to like really offer that uh, more regularly, more consistently for people who are seeking just that, just what we're getting after. Yeah. Well, um, thanks, Nick. Thanks for all your work on this episode. (sighs) Yeah. Thank you. And thanks all of you for listening. Real nice to be in your ear once again. Until next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye, Nick. Bye.